0: Hello everyone, welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Alex Murrah and I am joined today by Alexis Clark, and if this is your first time with us, welcome. We are a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Today we'll be chatting with Dr. Anthony Melke, who is an assistant professor of marriage and family therapy at Mount Mercy University. As a marriage and family therapist, he has worked with individuals in a wide variety of settings, including in-home mental health and family therapy services and outpatient settings. Dr. Melky's academic work focuses on developing a systemic approach to masculinity studies by integrating existential and systemic theory. Additionally, he is developing an approach to promote therapist well-being and facilitate meaningful client-therapist relationships, And is the primary faculty member for the leadership track in the Mount Mercy PhD in marriage and family therapy program. He completed his doctorate in marriage and family therapy at Argosy University, a master's from St. Mary's University of Minnesota, and a bachelor's in philosophy from the University of St. Thomas. Today he is here with us to discuss men's mental health. Welcome to the show, Dr. Melke.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about your path to becoming a professor in marriage and family therapy?
1: Sure. So after, so my undergraduate was in philosophy and I was always really interested in particular around any class or topic that dealt with human relationships, It's maybe a natural inclination or something like that. I just was always really attracted to that. And so in addition to the general classes and my philosophy classes, I took, I was able to take two psych classes and I, there were the first psych classes I had ever taken. The first one was general psych, which <laughs> I my mind was just blown. I was like, oh, because you know, in philosophy, you talk about, we're talking in the clouds you know, all the time, like, and then all of a sudden it becomes real and practical and like real change is possible and, and real human relationships can be I don't know, Address pulled apart, changed. So general psych hooked me. And then I took psychology of of marriage and family from the same professor at at St. Thomas. And that was my first introduction to marriage and family therapy. And uh, I was just, again, completely sold. I absolutely loved it. But I didn't know that I could get a master's in that without having an undergrad in psychology. So fast forward, I graduated, I was engaged. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And my then fiance just kind of offhandedly said, Well, what if you were a family therapist? It's like, oh gosh, that's a great idea. I love that. And then right after that, I ran into an old classmate of mine from undergrad who was studying marriage and family therapy at St. Mary's. And so I interviewed on the last day possible for that to start in the fall. Started, and, and as as soon as I landed, I knew I found my niche. And so Probably within my first few months of getting my master's, I was asking about a doctorate, and I'd always been passionate about education and, and teaching. and so fairly early on i I kind of had my sights set on teaching and after I finished my master's, my wife and I also had our first child, and we were we were saying, no doctorate, definitely no doctorate. We barely made it through the masters. There's no way we can we can do this again. And then I got really depressed after my master's program was done I was like this is it I have the same job I got a tiny raise like I was just really restless and I, I remember vividly sitting on my bed in our first apartment holding my daughter my wife was like what is wrong like you're depressed what's going on and I, I felt like I was admitting to her that I was having an affair or something I was, I was like I want my doctorate <laughs> she's like okay we can, you know, and so we agreed, you know, it's something that uh, she got on board with me pursuing it. And then once I started my doctorate, it was just kind of off to the races. And I really felt like education uh, was the place that I belonged because I could do clinical work, supervision and teaching. And then I just got incredibly lucky to find Mount Mercy, because their program is just a a really, I guess, our program is a really wonderful fit for my training. So yeah, I, I feel very lucky to be there.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting how you said you had run into an old classmate that was also studying at St. Mary's. And sometimes it just feels like the stars are aligning and, you know, everything just fell into place. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. I
1: kind of stumbled in, but as soon as I landed, it felt like home. I, I remember sitting in my first master's degree class learning about Freud. And I was like, this guy's wild. But also I cannot stop I'm so fascinated. Like I describe it as falling in love. I just, I just got fascinated with the whole field and it hasn't stopped. It's wonderful.
2: So when we were looking into you, Dr. Malky, we learned that you also host a podcast. The podcast is Becoming a Man. Can you tell us a little bit about this podcast? How long has it been around? What has your, what was your goal in creating this podcast?
1: Sure. Slight correction on the name. It's becoming man, not becoming a man, which is, it's kind of a nerdy correction because it's, it's, it's uh, my, so my co-host Marshall, he, he also works for me at my private practice. And I, was, I almost sheepishly was like, okay, we have to have it not becoming a man, but becoming man. And it really is, is this, this idea of, I guess being a man is a, a lot more ambiguous maybe than it was when, when my parents' generation and especially the generation before, So it's trying to capture this idea of the path towards, quote unquote, being a man is much, there's just a lot of ambiguity. And and I think we'll probably get into that a lot more. Uh, But anyway, that's the title. We started it in March. And the basic idea is I wanted to bring my academic and clinical work into a more accessible venue so that the ideas, the theories, the academic work that's been done in the world of masculine psychology. There's a, there's a problem in acad- academics where we talk to each other about these great ideas and, and it's always we, how do we disseminate it so it actually helps change lives. Um, and so this was this was sort of my way of doing that. Like you mentioned in the introduction, I'm working on a continuing to develop the theory of masculine psychology that tries to take into account what it means to belong to a community where your identity of who you are as a person is connected uh, intimately to how you see yourself as a man. That's that's something we'll probably get into in a little bit too. There was a problem I was trying to solve, which was why some men in the course of either couples or family therapy would make progress for a while. And then there'd be an opportunity for them to dive into emotion or become vulnerable or risk you know, sort of like violating what they thought of who a man was, what it meant to be a man. And they would pull back. It's like they would regress back to the earlier stages of therapy. And it was really difficult for them to sort of take that step into vulnerability or step into emotions. And that was a problem I kept seeing over and over in my early clinical work. And so I, I got fascinated about how do we deal with that? So back to the podcast, the idea, the goal is to bring all the research and And our personal stories, uh, both Marshall and I have our own personal stories of growth. We're both parents, we're both married. We both sort of like lived in the masculine milieu, you know, we continue to. And so we try to blend our personal stories with research and my academic theory, clinical experience to tell a story of, of exploring what it means to be a man who's suffering from mental, physical, relational health issues. And how to overcome the barriers that might be in place to accessing help. We have we talk about violence. We have a four-part series on men and violence, relationships. We, our recent episode that's coming out today or tomorrow is on men and work. We've talked about depression and suicide in men. It talks about cultural factors influencing masculinity. the The tagline of the of the podcast is to help. Men access the full range of human experience and address the barriers that are involved in that connected to masculinity.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for talking about your podcast. I think that the ideas that you and your co hosts are trying to bring up and discuss are incredibly important, especially when we think of these ideas of masculinity or in general gender norms. We don't really think about them, you know, they're so hidden within our society and the way we conduct ourselves. I didn't really think about them until I took a gender. Uh, and sociology (laughs) course
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: kind of tying off of that masculine norms and psychology or sociology they're defined as the culturally grounded expectations for men's roles behaviors the way they interact in relationships and your expertise what is what effect do these norms have on men's mental health over time Sure.
1: so there's two layers to that question the first the first one is you know Us three are having a conversation where we essentially accept what the field accepts psychology and marriage and family therapy about the definition around cultural norms and gender and masculinity, which is it's, it's, it's culturally created. It's a social construct that then gets interpreted as objective truth. And so this is what men do, but really, if we look at it nested in a social context, it's like, well, okay, these are kind of arbitrary things. The discussion becomes much more difficult when We're talking to people, men or women or, or communities that see that as a threat, that see that as, as wrong. Traditionally, the idea that traditional idea that sex and gender are intimately connected sex determines gender and that masculinity to be a man involves certain, certain ways of being in the world, certain attitudes, certain relational behaviors. There's a, there's a whole, I say it arbitrarily 50, 50, but you lose half of the people that you need to talk to if you, if you lead with these are culturally constructed norms because for a lot of men, it's, it's who they are as a, as a person. So I think one of the issues is we in the helping professions need to be aware that leading with that piece and treating these things as if they're socially constructed right off the bat before there's a relationship between the health provider and whether it's physical health, emotional health, relational health, there has to be that relationship first. Otherwise, it'll feel like a threat was, you know, I, I so often get couples in, in, in families and individual men in my, in my practice where they're like, uh, they feel like they're walking into a threatening situation because therapy itself represents some sort of challenge to how they see themselves as men. So anyway, your question, what effect do these norms have on men's mental health over time? So the stats are really bad for men's wellness. I don't know um, if you're familiar with any of them, but essentially we die sooner we're more addicted. We're lonelier, isolated. We complete suicide at a much higher rate. It's alarming. It's one of the highest causes of death in men right now is suicide. Our relationships are more struggling. We're more violent. We're more often incarcerated. It's not good. On the other hand, our cultural dialogue says things like women feel too much, or. You know, women go to the doctor too much, or, you know, women are too sensitive. So there's this uh, disconnect, this dissonance between the culture narrative and the lived experience. And that culture narrative can keep men isolated, trapped. It's like they, they can't move past the story that we share and look at the lived experience, which is in large part women are accessing the services that they need more. And are more connected more healthy you know all these better outcomes but the the standard norms can be oppressive to the to the men or not oppressive, that's the wrong word can be limiting to the men to like uh, it's very difficult to get over the solution to that by the way is relationship so we'll probably get into that earlier but there's a lot or later but there's a lot of research that says If there's somebody, another guy who recommends a guy to therapy, they're much more likely to go. But the last thing before we move to the next question is that idea that the culture narrative of like women do this too much, but the lived experience is that they're actually doing it enough in general terms. That's that, that can be seen as evidence of, you know, this term patriarchy is, is really thrown around quite a bit, but that's this, these harmful norms are embedded in systems. And so even the system of healthcare or therapy, and how we how we talk about it, that's evidence of these norms being nested actually in a system, not just in individuals. Uh, so that's a big idea. But I wanted to make sure I mentioned that.
2: So looking at the flip side of those cultural norms with sayings such as "real men don't cry, or man up that are related to those harmful stereotypes of masculinity, how can we as future public health professionals, whatever capacity that may be, or even just for the general public's knowledge, how can yeah. we help eliminate that stigma surrounding men's mental health
1: care? Sure, the, I'm I'm really interested in the power of the meaning of words and how words used in certain contexts can mean different things, it, and the the different meaning can bring a whole different experience to to people depending on what it means in the, in that context. I'm, I'm bringing that up because there's There were a series of studies done, I think in 2017 in Minnesota on men, mental health in the military. And of course that, that masculine norms are big in the military. And there was one study that looked at group therapy for veterans who are, I think they're dealing with trauma, like PTSD, either from their service or just like abuse before their service, like childhood. And what they found was that it was incredibly effective, first of all, and second of all, the, the men in the group used the same language that they would have used outside of therapy, but it meant something different. So the, a phrase, never leave a brother behind. In the battlefield, that means if somebody's wounded or, or uh, is a casualty, you save them, you turn around and you get them. In the therapy room, it meant be vulnerable and don't leave us hanging because we're all vulnerable. So if you're refusing it, you're you're violating this, this agreement that we all have. And there are other examples like this. So be a man, it changed from the traditional norms into be vulnerable, be open with us, provide feedback, show up, all these different things. And so the names didn't change, but what the names of the norms didn't change, but what they meant changed. And I think that's really a, a really important point. And, and, and then, the, of course, the relationship, which... Social norms are created in relationship. Social norms don't exist unless we talk to each other about them and live them out. The the solution is in relationships as well. In that therapy group, these men had a relationship and I've had this experience personally leading men's anger management and domestic violence prevention groups. The relationship opens the door. It's like, hey, it's okay. You're not going to be shut out you're not going to be rejected if you do these things that are against the norms I think the relationship is really key and I have a long list so I'm trying to go through it quickly and another thing that um, that can be really helpful you were talking about you know future professionals I always encourage my students and myself to be aware of whatever uh, experiences you have with men there are particular types of men that are triggering to you or, you know, narratives in the area that you're working involving men, it can be so easy for us to meet men with assumptions and stereotypes based on the based on the harmful men that we've known in our lives. I mean, that's early on, I had to notice and address my, my strong urge in therapy when arrogant men were present to just like crush them. (laughs) I wanted to break them down. And I doing my work in my own self-reflection, it was like it's very clear that I have arrogant men. There's a lot of pain there from from that. And so I was trying to play that out in the therapy room and it was limiting me on the, you know, on the professional to individual level, so a, a lot of social services communities and and therapy, there's there's the general stereotype like, well, the guy's not going to be involved anyway, so we're not going to invest or he'll, he'll be here for a little bit and then go, or uh, the capacity for feeling isn't there. You know, I'm thinking therapy now, so we're not even really going to try that much. We'll like just accept that story. And it's important to, to really, to believe that the capacity for healing and sort of like the full range of accessing services and the human experience is possible for the men we're working with might just take a while.
0: Yeah. i Really, I thought that um, point that you made about language early on was really Mm. interesting. I guess I'd never really heard of that. I've always heard of those sayings in a very negative context.
1: Yeah. Mm.
0: So it's kind of nice and refreshing to see that maybe it can be used in a positive way as well. Sure. Alongside what professionals can do, and there's advocacy efforts, I think there's more discussions nowadays surrounding mental health in general, and how important mental health is, in addition to just maintaining your physical health, has society maybe become more accepting of men's mental health? And if not, what are ways that we can actually really continue to advocate and really push the importance of this?
1: Mm -hmm. This, this was a question we got from a listener early in our podcast. And it made me think about it in a different way, discussing it a few months ago. I think the dialogue is changing and I think the stigma is, is going away, if you will. Um, some athletes are being much more open. Male athletes are much more open about their mental health struggles. I think recently Marshall, my co-host told me, um, Ken Griffey Jr. came out recently. He was a he's kind of a legendary baseball player from when I was a kid that he had either suicidal thoughts or even made an attempt early in his career, you know, and this guy's a legend. Right. So anyway, and there's, there's advertisements on some very, uh, some very stereotypically masculine podcasts now better help is, is advertising on the Joe Rogan podcast, which has sort of become the, the, uh, the, the, the quintessential male gathering space (laughs) online. So I think in a lot of ways there's there's uh, there is a changing dialogue. What I've noticed clinically is a lot of men want to change. They they're they're bought in. They're like, yes, I want to I want to break the stigma. But their habits of living and their family experience and their social experience has set up barriers that it's <laughs> it's almost like these these this the stigma is like is embedded in us as men. And even if we are willing to change it intellectually when you start doing the work like we bump up against we we rub up against the way of being that we've been living um up until that point so it's changing i think it's i think it's a difficult change Uh, i think there's a lot of a lot more room to grow but i I also have hope in you know i'm a i'm a millennial and i like it (laughs) which is sometimes a controversial statement um, but I in a lot of ways, I really love the, the more holistic approach that, that a lot of millennials are taking for parenting. And I think we're hopefully raising a generation of, of boys that are trying to, boys that are, are more open to their uh, experiences outside of these traditional masculine norms. I, sorry, I'll say one more thing. It's controversial this, to, to, to put a new way of being a man in, in, um, in contrast to quote unquote, traditional masculinity, uh, because that still means so, so much to so many men and to so many families. And so it's it's important to note that when I talk about it, I, I almost mean more the harmful impact of behaviors that are attributed to masculinity. Does that distinction make sense? Because it's an important one. And it's one that can be difficult to, to, to articulate.
2: I <laughs> to, go think- ahead with being it's 2021 and ever, hopefully everyone is going towards a more accepting mindset can you provide any clarification on you know we keep using very some some people would think controversial terms using the word boy and man and men yeah do you, how do you offer an an inclusive space when providing these services especially since you do specialize in masculinity and some people are dying to be more masculine where others, you know, are, there's difficulty with that. How does that work?
1: It, I really appreciate that question. It's always so clinically, I, I always launch from the place of following the person's lead that I'm working with. And everybody has a story with these concepts that we're talking about man, boy, male uh, masculinity and I'm much less interested in, oh, I'm actually not interested at all in pushing out a definition of male or masculinity. I am interested in in human experience. There, There are aspects of a healthy human experience that therapy can help with. And as the client attributes meaning and labels to their version of that healthy human experience, I follow their lead. And so if terms like male, man, boy come into play, okay, what does that mean to you? help me understand that and that's you know I I think one of the areas that I that I'm aware of that's a a blind spot for me that I continually address but it's it's just it's the case is I'm a white male I'm a physically able white male Marshall and I've talked about that on the podcast very skilled at following all of the things that I'm supposed to do quote-unquote according to the traditional male script you know was an athlete, didn't go to therapy till I was in my doctorate. You <laughs> know, like there's a lot there. And so that's a it's a constant place of awareness to understand like this is my experience. And I it's it's helpful in a lot of ways in the work, but it's also limiting. My answer to your question, Alexis, is a growth. I maybe wouldn't have answered that that way five, six, seven years ago, because I just wouldn't have the language to talk about it. But that that's the most important piece.
2: Yeah, that's great. And I think the willingness to grow and continue to learn and realize what people are comfortable with and what they want to be identified as is, yeah. is key yeah. in any industry, honestly. So when looking at barriers and the a, a man's experience, whether that's in mental health care or what have you, we had noticed when looking at mental health specialists or psychiatrists or psychologists, whatever it may be, there was a very lack thereof of individuals specializing in men's mental health. Why Mm -hmm. do you think that is?
1: I think there's a lot of complexity to that answer. And so this might be a little more kind of like informed conjecture rather than, you know, like, this is exactly what's happening. I think some of it is the function of what I was talking about early with the patriarchy's impact, the impact of patriarchy on health Care systems, it's uh, there's a really interesting history of masculine psychology that kind of started in the 70s and really started blossoming in the 80s. That tracked that that jumped onto this larger change trajectory in a lot of disciplines, anthropology, sociology. You know, informed by feminist theory that the male experience isn't the default human experience. So even identifying masculinity as a specialty or, or men's psychology as a specialty is, is, uh, <laughs> involves breaking away from this idea that the, the male way of being is the standard. So I actually think that's one of the things that's involved. I think, I think another thing that might be involved is m- most often it's men, male providers, male mental health providers that are interested in working with men. And there just aren't as many male mental health providers. And so I think that might be, you know, a, a built-in barrier to, to that. It's not it's not taught very much in training programs. And I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think that's on purpose. I think it's a specialty among many. And so, you know, if you're interested in any sort of phenomenon, you can sort of find your place, but there's just not, there's like not a ton of focus on it in training programs so yeah, it's just, it's just not, it's not spotlighted a ton. I think people bring in, you know, I came in with a passion to help men access more of, of the human experience and, and overcome these barriers. And so I sought out, but I'd never heard of masculine psychology before I started looking. I think those might be some of the reasons.
0: Yeah. Um, a lot of that seems to tie into that one idea that you mentioned earlier with uh, how these are deeply ingrained in a lot of the systems that we currently have. Yeah. Kind of switching gears, um, trying to talk about the COVID nineteen pandemic. So, obviously, this has been an incredibly stressful time for a lot of people. It's impacted people in many ways, having to deal with loss and extra stress.
2: Mm
1: -hmm.
0: How has the pandemic affected men's mental health as well?
1: Maybe it's just because I'm in. in the academic world but i feel like i always I'm, I'm having to caveat like these are generalizations and i and i'm not you know i haven't seen research on it but this is what i think based on my clinical experience so many you know it, it's it's kind of standard that identity is tied intimately to work and that historically that's been especially the case for men and whether or not it's especially more men than women, that doesn't matter nearly as much as in that traditional vein of understanding masculinity work is, is so intimately tied to self-worth and the ability to provide is so intimately tied to identity for, for men that, that can plug into that way of, of being male, I guess. And I think I, you know, not to be dramatic, but I think the pandemic has, brought on kind of a meaning crisis for a lot of men, especially men who weren't able to work anymore or provide in the ways that they're used to. I think also, again, based on a lot of my clinical experience, the resources that a lot of men have to do relationships just got tapped out With the changes that happened in the pandemic being home more, the emotional complexity of the stress involved in in pandemic times, a lot of the guys coming in for work with me are like, I don't know what to do. I've never felt this way, or it's worse than it ever has been. So I think, I think maybe some of the response or not responsibilities, but the stressors outstripped their um, capacities, which is not unique. I mean, that's kind of the story that all of us got tested, how how deep are our, our resources emotionally, relationally, and for a lot of people economically as well. One other piece to that that's sort of been interesting that I just started noticing clinically recently is boys and men have shared with me that they are struggling to feel as if their pain is real because they look at their situation and the privilege that they experience and then internalize this feeling like, but I shouldn't have this. Like I'm, I've, I'm, I'm the best off of all the groups, you know? Um, and I think the pandemic has, I've noticed it after the pandemic started has sort of escalated that feeling. They're having isolation, depression, meaninglessness, anxiety, conflict in the family, not being able to connect in ways that they want to. And then also like still having a job. still having financial resources and struggling with where to put their pain which is, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a weird thing to try to talk about because of the, the damage that's been done by the abuse of white male privilege too. So that's a big topic, but it's important to at least tease.
2: Building upon that with COVID, how yeah. did you and your practice deal with COVID-19? And what does your practice look like moving forward as people are more likely to be vaccinated? And it seems like we're heading towards a more normal.
1: So in the therapy world, we have this term called countertransference, which is the idea that the therapist sees something in their life experience in the story of the client, and we'll start to relate to the client as if they're relating to the person or experience that happened in their own life. So, you know, if you went through a divorce, and I was going through a divorce at that same time, the risk of counter transference would be, I might be bringing my, let's say I'm going through a messy one, I might be bringing my thoughts, feelings and attitudes towards divorce, and my divorce into your work, even if it didn't even if it didn't apply to your divorce story, you might be having an amazing divorce and doing co-parenting awesome. And if I'm not, the risk is I'll blur the lines between your experience and mine. In normal times, therapists run into this in a very serious way occasionally. You know, There might be one person in a week that you see that really hooks you, that you know, brings up something from your past. The pandemic, though, we were all going through the same thing. So everybody was dealing with the stress at the same time of, of, the, of the pandemic. And so therapists like everyone else were scrambling how to provide services and still dealing with their own losses, struggles with the pandemic, everything like that. So as we reintegrate, you know, for me, I've been following the CDC guidelines So for a while it was only telehealth, you know, we're talking over zoom, this is what, this is how it was. Then as vaccines started rolling out, it was, you know, uh, you come in, but we're doing masks no matter what, or stay telehealth. Now as more and more people are being vaccinated, it's, uh, thankfully I have a big office, so social distance is still easily accessible. So it's masks in the waiting room and then you can take them off if you want in, in the room once we're separated. So it's still, you know, it's precarious, but I think we're I think we're doing okay as a profession. And actually, I think just today, uh, Governor Reynolds is signing an important bill that will uh, involve keeping telehealth payments the same rate as uh, um, in-person payments. So usually they were less, um, and I think that's wonderful because that will ensure that mental health services can still be accessible to people that are still incredibly vulnerable to COVID-19 and and might not be able to reintegrate. And I worry about them being forgotten. I think we're all eager to go back to quote unquote normal. And I think it's natural to turn away from reminders that maybe it's not, things aren't as they were and might never be. So anyway, that's good. That's in place, which will help service access.
2: Yeah, that's great. I did not know about that passing with Governor Reynolds. I don't Um,
1: know if happened yet, but it's coming from my understanding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, that is good. Uh, there's a couple of things you mentioned um, throughout this podcast, first being your past trauma or whatever it may have been with arrogant men. And then you just had also mentioned there might be a case that sticks with you because you're going through something very similar. How mm-hmm. do you deal with that?
1: So a buzzword or a buzz phrase in, in therapy training is every good therapist has a therapist. And I take that incredibly seriously. I quipped before. I didn't, get, I didn't start going to therapy until I was in my doctorate. It's true. <laughs> and the reason was I wasn't ready to face whatever was waiting for me on the other side of therapy, which was my past and my present. You know, I, I had real struggles, but I wasn't willing to look at them. And my efficacy as a therapist, my fulfillment in my work, everything started turning around when I started looking at myself in doing my own work. And I didn't realize the incredible amount of energy that was going into keeping my past at bay and my present at bay when I was working with people. It was keeping me distant. And so when this, there's two options I think that people do. Either they try to cut off their thoughts and feelings in the therapy room. You know, there's this, we have to leave our feelings at the door, which is so impossible, (laughs) we can't do that. We can cut off from them and then they just stay there and then they seep out in weird ways, or we can turn around and face whatever it is that comes up for us and, and integrate it, you know, so it's not scary. It's we're doing our own work. That's the best way is to take care of yourself. And that's, that's so cliche, but it's so vital. And also there's supervision. You know, we, we do super, I supervise all of my students. So you, you're not alone. I think isolation is is probably the, the single most damaging thing for what you're talking about. If you're isolated as a therapist, you're just sitting with your stuff. So having good colleagues, getting mentorship, essentially tending yourself um, in a way that can turn your difficult, your struggles, uh, your past pain, your current pain into a point of empathy for clients. You know, if you, if, you're, if you lost somebody from COVID and I lost somebody from COVID, one option would be for me to either ignore your pain because mine is too much. Another could be for me to process my pain with you as my client, which is completely unethical. Or a third is to access my experience as empathy I'd say, I think I might know what that's like. And I can ask you questions. Do you feel powerless? I and mean, I don't even have to tell you that I've lost somebody to COVID I can just draw from my experience and, and see if that fits with yours. I, I think I answered your question.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your personal experiences, sure. and um, I think it's so important. This I've heard a lot of times. A lot of people who get into any type of healthcare, like we want to help out people. Sometimes there's this feeling of like selflessness, and I had a mentor tell me pretty early on, like you have to take care of yourself to be able to take care of other people really well. So to try and like finish us off we always like to ask this question to our guests but what is one thing that you thought you knew but were later wrong about
1: that is okay that's an awesome question first of all and it's so big and so i i probably thought about this one the most I was like all right what do i tell them about it's relevant i think because this is i mean it's happened a lot But I think the one that's probably most relevant to what we're talking about today, sort of like the impact of traditional masculine norms and those sorts of things, is I had a deeply held belief that I could think my way into and out of anything. And I don't just mean problem solving, I mean, like feelings, really thought that if I just thought hard enough, what was making me sad, wouldn't make me sad anymore. Or if what was making me angry if I could just think my way out of it it wouldn't I wouldn't be angry anymore and I would be okay and that that wouldn't negatively affect me like that was such a deeply held way of being that I had that when I I, I kind of had to go through some pretty rough experiences to realize like that was a lie that is not possible <laughs> can can't think our way out of feelings and so I think that's maybe that's the best answer for what we're talking about today is, is, is coming to the realization that I can't think my way out of everything. There's this, there's this super cute kids book called we're going on a bear hunt is my, one of my, have either of you heard of this book? It's a, it's a really cute book of a dad taking his kids through an imaginary bear hunt. And they keep, they keep like hitting barriers, like a swamp and grass and, and, and a, a, a blizzard and the, the repeated line in the book is we can't go th- over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we have to go through it. you know. It's, and there's I think there's a there's wisdom in that. I can't think your way out of this stuff. Sometimes the only the only way to do it is to go through. There it is. Well,
0: thank you so much for that. That's a really nice way to kind of wrap it all up. Overall, just thank you so much for the work that you've been doing. I think it's really interesting. It's very important, and it's very much needed. And thank you so much for coming on this podcast with us today and chatting with us.
1: Absolutely, I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you for having me.
2: That's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Dr. Malkey for coming on with us today. This episode was hosted by Alexis Clark and Alex Murrah. Written, edited, and produced by Alex Murrah. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Stay happy, stay healthy, and keep learning.